Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. I find it very sad to observe how the rebellions of 1837-38 have completely faded from the historical memory of Canadians. The film Samuel Mount, directed by Lawrence Keane, came out in 18, 1985 and compellingly told the story of the rebellions in Upper Canada. Pierre Falardeau's excellent film, February 15, 1839, the original title was 15 février 1839, came out in 2001. The events of 1837 and 38 were critical turning points in the evolution of Canada's political and intellectual history. They gave voice to serious social and economic grievances and demanded a better democracy. They paved the way to responsible government and, 30 years later, to confederation. Still, they have left our sensitivities. The only thing that keeps my hope alive that these events will be recognized is that Quebec officially recognized the Monday of the May long weekend as the Journée des Patriotes, or Patriots Day. With me today are two young historians who keep the memory alive on these rebellions and who've worked together to edit an international collection of essays on the topic, but with a special twist. One of them is Maxime Dejeuner. He is the research coordinator at the L.R. Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University. The other is Julien Mauduit, who is the L.R. Wilson assistant professor in the Department of History at McMaster. Their book is entitled Revolutions Across Borders, Jacksonian America and the Canadian Rebellion, and it is published by McGill-Queens University Press. We reached both of them by phone at their office at McMaster University. Professor Dejeuner and Professor Mauduit, welcome to the mic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think we should start with the basics here. What okay. happened in 1837? And let's start with Lower Canada. If we start the story in um, November 1837, following um, a political impasse that basically paralyzed Lower Canada for decades, the Parti Patriot um, basically uh, revolted against British rule. Now, craving a more representative and accountable government, the Patriot no longer believed that such reforms could be obtained through peaceful means. The British government had until then rejected almost all of their demands, and they even um, ordered the arrest of uh, several Patriot leaders. Rebellion, many felt, was the only option, and the insurrection began, or the rebellion begins, with a great Patriot victory um, at Saint-Denis, which is east of Montreal, on November 23rd. The outnumbered and outarmed uh, rebels of Lower Canada, the Patriots, were subsequently defeated at Saint-Charles, which is a small village uh, south of Montreal, on November 25th. And finally, they were defeated um, at Saint-Eustache, uh, which is north of Montreal, on December 14th. Now, in the aftermath of these rebellions, several uh, patriot leaders, men like Louis-Joseph Papineau, Louis-Joseph Vernay, uh, Robert Nelson, escape Lower Canada and they seek refuge in um, American border towns like Buffalo, Burlington, St. Albans, water towns all over the borderland in the United States. And they bring the events um, into the U.S. They bring the rebellions into the United States, which is what the topic of our book is about. So, I mean, we're not really that concerned, I think, with the events in Lower Canada. Uh, we're mostly concerned with what happens after the event becomes transnational, becomes a true North American event. What, so what, what about Upper Canada then? In uh, Upper Canada, the uh, political uh, contestation increased parallel to Lower Canada. There was also, it's worth mentioning, the financial panic uh, mm -hmm. that occurred in the spring 1837. So during the summer 1837, William Lyon Mackenzie, one of the uh, leaders of the Upper Canadian reformers, 
or radicals, organized a network of political unions across the colony. He also called for a convention to be held in December 1837. In um, November 1837, a proposed constitution was published in the newspaper, in Mackenzie's newspaper, actually, in the constitution. And learning about the events in uh, Lower Canada at the beginning of December 1837, the Upper Canadian Rebel tried to uh, physically and militarily take Toronto. And so we have the famous raid on Montgomery's Tavern. Exactly, the Battle of Montgomery's Tavern. Now, you guys have raised an interesting question here. You're, you're saying that uh, William Lyon Mackenzie reacted to the events of Saint-Denis and then Saint-Charles and then, of course, Saint-Eustache. And he decides to take up arms. For a lot of people, the events seem to be a continuous uh, role. The events in Quebec are followed by the events in Upper Canada. Were they, in your minds, related events? Uh, that is still a very, very uh, divisive question. Um, and a question that um, our contributors don't agree on. Was it a separate phenomenon or united event? I mean, I, Julien and I, in our conversations and Julien and I, in our work, have tried to show that, yes, it is one event with various links, with events linking um, upper, lower, but also uh, the United States as well. Well, let's um, talk about that then, because it, it seems as though, from the perspective of the United States, there's no real mm -hmm. difference as to whether it's the habitants who are revolting, or whether it's the upper Canadians, is there? Exactly. The the word used was mainly Canada, the Canadian yes. Revolution or the Canadian Rebellion or the uh, Civil War in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, singular. So yeah, all in singular. They did not insist too much on the different colonies, even though some of them, and one of our contributors, Professor Louis-Georges Harvey, demonstrates how some Americans had a deep knowledge of the differences, uh, especially the ethnic and cultural differences between mm -hmm. Upper and Lower Canada. Mm -hmm. But from an American perspective, the Canadians were rebelling. Yeah, exactly. And when you look at the evidence in the United States, so if you focus on, for instance, in the immediate aftermath of the events in Lower and Upper Canada, American newspapers are talking about the rebellion because the rebellion does, in fact, become a major, major source of concern in the United States. Well, let's, but let's talk about I mean, your, your book I mean, implies the uh, Jacksonian America. Let's talk about Jacksonian America then. What is Jacksonian America? What do you mean by that? So Andrew Jackson was a symbolic president of the United States. He was elected in 1828. And he is known for his radicalism. He is well known for his opposition to the banking system, mm -hmm. banking system connected to uh, British capital. Jacksonianism or radical Jacksonians are understood as the Americans opposed to this British influence in the United States. Jackson, though, was out of office by the time these events happened. Did mm -hmm. he leave a legacy? Yes, well, his legacy was Martin Van Buren, who at the time of the rebellion is the president of the United States, and Martin Van Buren, under Jackson, was the vice president. He's considered to be a continuation of Jacksonian America, so a lot of the positions and attitudes that Jackson had basically continue under Martin Van Buren. So what was Martin Van Buren's ideas of, or did he ever articulate a position on what was happening in Canada? Yes, for a good two years, um, the Canadian Rebellion, Canadian Revolution, whatever you want to call it, Americans call it the Canadian Re Revolution. It really is at the center of a major uh, debate in the United States. I mean, newspapers are discussing the rebellion almost every single day to the point that it becomes 
in some region, including Philadelphia, where I, I did a lot of research and I published an article on uh, Philadelphia a couple of years ago, it becomes front page material. The rebellion really is something that they discuss. And Martin Van Buren couldn't ignore that. It was discussed all over the place and he had his own position. Yeah. So there was a strong difference between the people along the border who majority uh, defended the Canadian rebellion and the government uh, with the uh, Congress, the American Congress, who were opposed to this rebellion. So Van Buren was officially publicly opposed to the rebellion. He condemned the patriots, whether lower Canadians, upper Canadians, or Americans mm-hmm. who were involved in the rebellion. He helped to vote new law to repress this uh, attempted revolution. The army was used uh, against sent, the patriots. Uh, he sent Winfield Scott, who Canadian historians would recognize from, um, he was famous from the War of 1812, sends Winfield Scott to the border to basically ensure that neither supporter or, or uh, Laura Nefer Canadian rebel was causing uh, too much problem along the along the border. Okay, okay, but this is important because you're, you're raising an interesting issue here. The patriots, the patriotes uh, from Lower Canada, find exile in, as you said, the, the borderlands in the United States. There are some there are some people who leave Upper Canada also, but you're what you're bringing out here is something I think that's been forgotten is there, that there there was a reaction of support for the patriots, mm-hmm. support for the rebellions mm-hmm. among those borderlands. But you're saying that Washington, in terms of Martin Van Buren, was opposed to the rebellion. So there's a conflict brewing between the local militias that are that are emerging to support the rebellions and Washington. Is there not? Yes, and clarify, support was not only limited to the borderland. I mean, of course, you know, like Maine, Vermont, uh, sure. New York, Ohio, Michigan. Uh, I mean, those those are just centers of support. But in my own research on Philadelphia, on Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, um, even in even in Washington D.C., the rebels, the the patriots, patriots had a lot of support in the United States, though not everyone was willing to take up arms and fight the British, a lot have moral support for the Patriots. I mean, we, we see evidence of local politicians, but also local newspaper editors commenting or wishing goodwill to the Patriots, linking people like um, William Lane McKenzie and Louis-Joseph Papineau to heroes of the American Revolution. I mean, to Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and George Washington. They get support because Americans are viewing the Canadian fight as basically their own. What's happening in Canada in 1837-38 is the same stuff that was happening in the U.S. in, um, in, in the 1770s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they make a direct link between the American Revolution and you know the Canadian Rebellion, which they call the Canadian Revolution, and they support it. Of course, not everyone is willing to take up arms and fight the British, but I think if you look at the sources, you'll see that throughout 1837 and 38, there is a lot of support beyond the borderland for the rebellion. Now, you mentioned that there's a, there's a paramilitary aspect to this. There are border raids coming from the United States into Canada, led by, in French, they're called the Frères Chasseurs. Is it the Hunter Brothers? Is it the, is the, it the, the Hunter's Lodges. The Hunter's Lodges yeah. in the United States. Tell me about the, the the Hunter's Lodges. What were they? We are not sure when this secret society was built, but it's influenced by the Freemasonry, and there is a strong link between Freemasonry and the revolutions in Europe. 
and the United States as well. It was a secret organization, paramilitary secret organization uh, to organize the uh, uprising, to organize the revolution. So it's very hard to have uh, evidence and knowledge on this secret society, especially because they failed. Sure. But at, there, there were at least two main headquarters one in Plattsburgh, led by uh, lower Canadian exiles, and another one in Cleveland. Even if some upper Canadians were members of this uh, Hunters Lodges uh, Society, its leadership was mainly American. They tried to work together in order to uh, lead the revolution in Canada. And intellectually, there was another group of people that you link with the grassroots democratic movement. You call them the Loco... Loco Foco. Loco Foco, which is for me something new. What what is the Loco Foco and their thinking on the rebellion? It was a grassroots in the sense that there there was a political party established in 1835, which was called the Equal Rights Party, and they were the radical wing of the Jacksonians of the Democratic Party. There was a political party, but. They were extremely radicals in terms of um, political uh, ideas, economic ideas. Uh, They were strictly opposed to the British economic influence. They were opposed to any kind of Republican privileges, so any kind of social and economic hierarchy in the United States. They were strong equalitarian Americans. And their position on the rebellions was, I would imagine, very supportive of the rebellions. Exactly, exactly. So it was actually one of the major, this group of citizens uh, was one of the major support that mm-hmm. the Canadians received in the uh, United States. They had many newspapers, they had political influence, so the Canadians could, could count on this network of political organizations. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're painting us a, an interesting picture here, where you've got the failed rebellions in Upper Canada and Lower Canada. You have leaders exiled into the United States. There is a public opinion of support in those borderlands, and as you guys say, beyond the borderlands, in support of the rebellion. You have militias gathering. They will actually attack. Will they not? They will attack uh, Canada? Yeah, I mean, there's there's many, many instances. The famous Sir Robert Peel um, episode in which a very, very infamous pirate, Bill Johnston, uh, who happened to be born in Trois-Rivières, I believe, who um, attacked a ship that was um, en route uh, to Toronto. And then there's also events um, in Windsor. There's also an event at the Battle of Windmill. So yes, I mean, they're, they're the ones, they, they do raid uh, Canada and they do attack um, Upper Canada in uh, 1838. If I just can uh, specify, I am not sure the officially the, mil- the American militia was attacking no, that's very uh, important to clarify. No, I don't think it was a militia. Yeah. No, so it was, these were organized gangs, let's say. Well, I mean, it's, it's the hunters. The hunters' the lodges. Hunter lodges, right. Let's yeah. be precise. The hunter lodges. Yeah. This has consequences. So again, your, your book depicts uh, an America that is in conversation with Canada in a way that I, don't, I suspect most people would find surprising. Mm-hmm. So you're also uh, painting a picture where the, Washington finds itself trying to catch up with what the borderlands are saying. And Julien, in your in your chapter, in your book, you talk about the impact of Van Buren's position on his political career. Yeah. Can you explain that? What's happening? As you mentioned at the beginning, there was a financial panic that led to what is called in the U.S. the hard times so or an economic depression. And Van Buren did not want to have troubles with 
uh, Great Britain. He needed their capital, he needed their investment, and he needed to sell American products and before all uh, the cotton to Britain. So Van Buren did not want any conflict with the British. So he took a very bold position against the Patriot, and he didn't consider the political backlash of this political decision. So in the North, many U.S. citizens considered that he gave up with the uh, origins of the American Republic. That was to fight for democracy, people's rights, and they considered that Van Buren uh, gave up with these original principles. And the backlash, the political backlash, uh, occurred a few months later uh, during the presidential campaign of 1840. He was opposed to a former American officer who fought the British during the War of 1812. Benjamin uh, Harrison. Harrison, exactly. So uh, Harrison played on this uh, image of a former general fighting against the British, while uh, Van Buren had shown before that to everyone that he was opposed to the rebellions, to the Canadian Revolution. So uh, even if the, the Canadian Revolution, the Canadian attempted revolution did not make the president, it helped Harrison to win key states such as Pennsylvania, uh, New York, uh, Michigan and Maine. So the Canadian Revolution, uh, the attempted revolution, had a direct impact on his defeat. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Certainly, th- this is something very new. I, I think readers of your book are going to find this very surprising. That for once, Canada might have had a, a role to play in <laughs> determining, at least to some degree, the American presidency. The Champlain Society, of course, uh, is always concerned about documentation. And can you uh, generally tell us about what documents are available to researchers on issues like this? I want to remind our listeners that this is an edited collection of international contributors. You've been you've brought together a, a wide variety of people to write about this phenomenon of American interest in Canadian affairs, which is remarkably original and and well worth reading. What is the state of documentation? Are we are, are we making progress? Are you using the stuff that previous historians have used, or what, what is the state of documentation? It's very good. Um, at first, I imagine that finding resources on the topic would be um, a little bit difficult. But Americans are very good at digitizing collections, and especially newspapers. And for, for those of us who study the colonial period, um, I mean, newspapers are often a very good place to start, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's, it, they're a goldmine of information. You're not only getting a lot more detailed information about what's happening, you know, like the events, but you're also getting the opinions of editors, and you're also getting um, the opinions of local citizens who are writing these letters to the editor, um, but also sometimes there will be, um, and I have witnessed uh, with regards to the rebellion, um, I have witnessed a lot of more popular evidence of support. People were holding rallies in favor of the rebellion. As the the American uh, Antiquarian Society, which is in, um, I will try to, I've been told a million times that as a francophone, I say it wrong, but it's in Worcester. Massachusetts. Um, Worcester, Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah, they have an amazing database of newspapers, basically America's historical newspapers, which has newspapers from the late 1600s to um, the 1820s and 1830s and 1840s. And they have these, because they're all digitized, you can do keyword searches. So for any researcher who is interested in researching the rebellion from an American perspective, you have access to basically hundreds of newspapers online with keyword searches. So if you're interested in McKenzie, you just search McKenzie and you will get 
literally hundreds of newspaper articles with McKinsey um, in it. Well, that's wonderful and news. That's wonderful news. It is news. a great, great, it's an amazing start. And I mean, it was eye-opening. You know, in Canada, as we all know that digitization projects are not, especially for newspapers, there's no database. There's Our databases for newspapers are, are sorely lacking um, compared to, to at least what I found in the U.S. And it's made research so much easier, so much cheaper, because you don't have to travel to all these places. And, you know, when you're a young academic, you're a postdoc, you know, you're a sessional, you don't have access to, to tons of money to do all these research trips and go to all these local archives. Um, having access to databases like that makes research not only easier, but possible. Well, that's that, um, that's great news. That's great news. And it's obviously a good example of how new resources, new documentation can generate new knowledge, and exactly. new writing. Thank yeah, you, gentlemen. Just... Thank you very much for, for sharing your time with me and with our listeners uh, on this important topic. I've been speaking with Maxim Dejeuner. He's the research coordinator at the I.R. Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University, and Julien Mauduit, the I.R. Wilson assistant professor in the Department of History at McMaster. Their book is entitled Revolutions Across Borders, Jacksonian America and the Canadian Rebellion, and it is published by McGill-Queens University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. This podcast has been made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on January 28, 2019. It was produced by Lily Robbins and Megan Boisjardin. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.